Welcome geleden voor de camera te kijken van ons online gehoord te zeggen bye bye welkom bij ons online dienst kerkfamilie kan ik vooral dat net zoals wat leven wordt met de rand of hier kerkfamilie te doen met de handenklap ook net ons kerkfamilie of ons online gehoord voor welkom en dan als men zijn gastspreker voorstelt voelt het altijd ook zo klein beetje onvanpas om dit met de handenklap te doen maar ik wil graag dat ons ook voor ogen van Mats Dijssel en Mats kan ook schieten kom join me on stage then we welcome Mats Dijssel also just with a warm hand of applause and it's just, what it really is, is just a, a show of appreciation. Now, if you've been in the congregation uh, for some time, you might, have, might already know Mads in the ministry. Uh, if you're new to Living Word Madrid, or you might be a visitor this morning, Mads leads uh, Edify Building the Soul. A real passion is counseling, and I should say more than that, training counselors for churches. So we will make, uh, make a little bit more use of Mads' expertise in the future as far as that is concerned. But we're in an interesting phase in our congregation currently with our building project and all kinds of things happening. I can also just tell you that within our church association, ARC, Mads has got a high profile and she does a fantastic job in also ministering to church leaders. So Mads, for all you do in your faithfulness and um, the excellence with which you do it, we all thank you. I'm going to ask you, if you're comfortable with it, let's close our eyes and extend our hands to Mads and receive her this morning. Father, thank you for Mads. Thank you for the gift that you have bestowed on her. Thank you that she's faithful with that gift. This morning we open our hearts to receive through her from you what you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really, really excited and expectant. Um, during the worship, I had a picture of a heart and at the same time, that image of when, when God allowed the Israelites to, to pass through the river and, and, and the river just open up so they could find a place to freedom. And I feel like God is going to be opening up hearts today as a pathway into freedom. Uh, and that's my hope and my prayer for you. And uh, as Vanna says, my, my heart is to empower people with tools when it comes to understanding mental health. And I know last week he spoke into a couple of lies that many of us struggle with when it comes to mental health. Lies like, as a Christian, I shouldn't be struggling. Or things like, God doesn't really care about my mental health and what's going on in my mind. And today I want to speak into a lie, or a couple of other lies, where first of all, I'm powerless over my mental health. A lot of times we feel like we have no control over what we're thinking about and that God actually doesn't care about what I am feeling or thinking. And those are two lies that I want to speak into today. And my title is that when the external storm becomes the internal storm. How many of you this year have been through some kind of a storm crisis where it just feels relentless? And sometimes it's not just one storm, it's a cluster of storms. It's not just in one area of your life, it's in almost every area of your life. And you're just like, can I catch a break? How many of you moms just feel like your admin list is a storm? <laughs> Anybody feel like it's just never-ending pressures around us? And so I want to show you that the, the narratives we tell ourselves really have an impact on how we manage even external crises. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body. And I know Vanna spoke into this a little bit last week, but I want to just highlight the word soul. May your spirit, soul, and body. And that word soul in the original Greek is actually the word psyche, 
It's where the word psychology comes from. In other words, why am I thinking, feeling, and behaving the way I am? Because our thoughts will impact our emotions and our behaviors. And today I want to show you three storm stories in Scripture. And we're going to look at each of these stories, each of these storms, and we're going to look at the narratives that were spoken in those storms and the fruits of those narratives. And I want to show you the power of a truth narrative in a storm. So if you've got your Bibles, I see front row here has got your Bibles. Well done. Free coffees for you. <laughs> oh, the coffees are already free. Okay, that's awesome. I love it. Okay, so this first story is found in Mark 4, verses 35 to 41. As evening came, Jesus said to the disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and they started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. Soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. I wonder who gave him the cushion. <laughs> okay, the disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we are going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. The first narrative we hear in this storm story is the phrase, don't you care? Don't you care? One of the lies that often we find ourselves believing when we're in a crisis is that Jesus doesn't care. Now, there are a couple of points I want to make, first of all, about the story. Storms are a guarantee in life. Scripture says, in this world, there will be troubles, storms. Just because we're Christ followers doesn't mean we're exempt from storms. We live in a world that's caught in the grip of death and decay. It's broken. Storms will always be brewing. And isn't it funny how storms always seem to come at the most vulnerable moments in our lives? when it's really dark or when we're at our worst. And storms are often what ends up happening when we go through some kind of a storm crisis is that we want to eliminate the storm. We want to deny it. We want to anesthetize it. Sometimes we even want to Botox it. You know what I'm saying? We just want to get rid of the crisis, the tension. And the biggest problem with storms is often we end up becoming very narrow-visioned, and all we do is focus on the storm. You see, the storm will expose the very thing you're putting your faith in. What were the disciples putting their faith in in this story? It says very clearly in verse 37, oh, and then he lost it, it says, High waves were breaking into the boat, which began to fill with water. You see, in that moment, they were focusing on the boat. The boat was their lifeline. The boat was what kept them alive. The boat is what was now under jeopardy because the waves were breaking into it, and it was filling the with water, 
And that's when the crisis starts to arise. If there's a storm in your finances, you're focusing on the impact that's having on your finances. If, the sto- if, your, if your faith is in your marriage and there's a storm in your marriage, can you see how storms reveal the very things that you put your faith in? And then suddenly it exposes that and there's an anxiety, there's a fear, there's a crisis. What am I going to do now if my boat fills with water? The storm also reveals your faith narrative. It exposes what it is that you're trusting in. And when the disciples came to Jesus, they said to him, don't you care that we are going to drown? Don't you care that we're going to die? How many of of you have heard people say those kind of sentences when they're in a crisis? You know what? God doesn't care. He's nowhere to be found. I'm alone. No one cares about me. And it's so important that we consider the narratives because you see, Even though the disciples were in an external storm, the narrative they were speaking created an internal storm. If they believed that Jesus really didn't care and they were going to die, it created a crisis on the inside. Okay, And when they woke Jesus, they shouted at him, don't you care? I just want you to imagine being in a ship in the middle of, of the sea with waves broken, breaking over your boat, and Jesus is fast asleep. It's interesting that they didn't process Jesus asleep in the storm as an indication of what their posture should be. If Jesus is asleep, then maybe I don't have anything to fear. But they didn't see it because they were fixed on a different narrative. And at the end of the story, the second narrative they come out with is, who is this man? You see, I don't think they'd had a revelation yet of who was in the boat with them. I'm originally from Durban, and uh, we moved up to Joburg about five years ago, and I had never experienced your electrical thunderstorms until I moved here. And it was quite an experience. I remember the very first time we had one, my husband wasn't around, and uh, a lightning bolt struck our front garden, and it sounded like a bomb had gone off. And the whole family came running, jumped onto the bed. I mean, everyone was in crisis. We're like, oh my gosh, like, are we going to (laughs) die? That's what it felt like. And um, Fama Habin told him what happened, and he said, oh yeah, that's normal. Don't worry about it. And a couple months later, another one of these storms hit, but he's home now. And uh, for those of you, Mahabi, the last time we were here, we actually spoke together. I think I shared, he, he's a bit of a Magava. Anyone remember Magava? My first heartthrob, um, really handsome guy back in the 80s and 90s that was on TV a lot. Uh, and Magava could fix anything. You could take literally a piece of gum and a paper clip and he could save the world. That's my husband. He's a Magava. He can fix anything. And I suddenly realized my experience of storms change when he's home. See, when he's not there, I'm like under the blankets with the kids. Like, please, Lord, don't let it strike our house. I don't know what to do. When he's home, I'm like, ha, ha, You know, I laugh in the face of a storm. Because I know the power of the one at home with me. The disciples never knew the power 
of who was in the boat with them. Who is this man? You see, when we read the story, we know it's Jesus. We know that this is the one that was raised from the dead. When they in the story, they don't know who he is yet. They haven't had a deep revelation of what's going on. But their narrative, therefore, produced fear. So let's look at another storm story. And this story is found in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 252. It's a couple of pages over if you've got your Bibles. And um, here we go from verse 45. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat. I wonder if there was a part of them was like, uh, I don't know if I want to get back on a boat. But anyway, so they head across the lake to Bethsaida. While he sent the people home, after telling everyone goodbye, he went up the hill by himself to pray. Okay, so the disciples are on the boat now without Jesus. Jesus has gone up a mountain to pray. Late that night, of course, it's when storms come. Late that night, the disciples were in their boats in the middle of the lake. Jesus was alone on the land. He saw that they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and the waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came towards them, walking on the water. He intended to go past them, but when they saw him walking on the water, they cried out in terror, thinking he was a ghost. They were all terrified when they saw him, but Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I am here. Then he climbed into the boat, and the wind stopped, and they were totally amazed for well, they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of, their lo- of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. There's a whole lot of stuff going on in this storm story that I want to just kind of bring your attention to. The narrative this time wasn't that he didn't care. The narrative was, he's a ghost. Okay? Fear can distort our narrative. Fear can even cause us to lose sight of reality. I think this time their fear levels were even higher than the first storm story because now Jesus is not in the boat. They're alone in this crisis. And now they see someone walking on the water and instantly the story they tell themselves is this is a goat. The first thing I want you to understand is how powerful fear is. And when I was prepping for this, I was kind of just Googling in psychology kind of uh, articles and reading through um, what psychology would kind of define fear to be. And I found this article in Psychology Today, and the article is called uh, The Five Deceptions of Fear, and this is what it has to say. In order for fear to successfully convince us to see the reality it wants us to see and not the reality that it is, it must first distort the truth about how it distorts truth. We must not know that fear is a distortion or we would no longer believe in it. So fear draws a veil of obscurity over the way things actually are and then keeps us in darkness about what it has done. 
When you listen to this description, it almost sounds like it's talking about a person, doesn't it? In order for fear to be successful and convince us of the reality it wants us to see, fear is a person. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but there's an enemy that wants us to live in a spirit of fear. There's an enemy that wants to cloud our minds from seeing the reality of truth and wants us instead to believe a distortion. Jesus is a ghost. That's not the Messiah or your Savior. It's a ghost who you must fear. Can you hear that there is a war going on for your mind? 2 Corinthians 10 says we need to capture rebellious thoughts. That word thought is the word neoma, which means it's a thought with an evil intention. Its intention is to sidetrack you from truth. Its intention is to instill fear and deception in you. And the problem with deception is that you don't know you're being deceived whilst you're in deception. Otherwise, you would know it. What's really interesting is this is an article not written by theology students, but by psychology. And often psychology wants nothing to do with theology, but yet even psychology is personifying fear, that there's actually an author behind it. Now, how many of you noticed the phrase when I was reading the story where it says, he intended to go past them. How many of you noticed that? How many of you wondered, why was Jesus' motive to just walk straight past them? I mean, surely that shows a heart that doesn't really care they're in crisis, yes? I mean, you don't want to walk past somebody in crisis and just leave them there. That's not the heart of the gospel, you know? So I want to draw your attention to understand the context of that phrase, to go past Moses was in a mountaintop, and he asked God if he would reveal to him his glory. So this is what God said in response to Moses' request in Exodus 33 verse 22. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. You see, God's glory is actually sometimes too magnificent for us to see directly head on. God's saying, you know, if you want to see me, like just stand back and let me pass you by. The phrase of passing by is actually not a phrase of I'm walking past you because I don't want to stop there, but I want to reveal to you my glory, how big I really am. The same thing happens in Elijah in 1 Kings 19 verse 11. And we, we, we see this concept, the phrase to pass by is actually a phrase used to reveal his glory in order to summon faith. How powerful is that? Job describes God saying this. This is Job 9 verse 8. He alone can stretch out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. So Job describes God as being so powerful that he can create heavens and walk on the waves of the sea. So let's go back to Jesus 
who we know is God, who's walking on the waves of the sea, and he's passing by the boat, revealing his glory, how big he really is. You see, his intention to pass by wasn't the way we understand it, because he just wanted to ignore them. No, he wanted to summon faith so they would see the bigness of who he really is. He passed by to summons faith. And then it goes even deeper. Remember, they thought he was a ghost. They're frightened. The story they're telling themselves is a goat. Jesus spoke to them and he said, don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. I am here. Some translations uses the phrase, it is I. The Greek only uses two words for I am. It is ego, emi. In other words, Jesus is actually referring to his deity. Listen to this. Exodus 3, verses 13 to 14. We're going back to Moses and God having a narrative where God is now telling him to go to Pharaoh to call out the peoples. And Moses protests it. He goes, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, who is this man? What am I then to say to them? And God replies to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. John 8, 57 to 58 says this, The people said, and they're talking to Jesus, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say, Jesus, that you have seen Abraham? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. Let's go back to the story of the storm. Mark 6 verse 50. Jesus is saying, take courage. I am here. Not I am here, Jesus here, I am here, the king of creation here, I am, God is here. Can you hear the power of these words? You see, Jesus wants to speak truth to often our distorted narratives. Their narrative is, a ghost is here. Jesus is going, no, 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 I am more than a ghost, it's I am It's the God of creation who is here. Take courage. Their response as he climbed into the boats and they were made, like, and the wind stops, their mind is blown. When you look at the biblical translation of they were totally amazed, you know, sometimes we just go, oh, wow, I'm amazed, like fireworks, wow. No, their minds were blown. New neuro pathways were being laid in that moment around the significance of who Jesus really is. Can you notice as we go through these storm narratives that there's a slow shifting of what's happening in terms of what they're aligning their minds to? Who is this man in the boat? Maybe it's a ghost. To suddenly, this is the great I am before creation and even a single foundation of this earth was laid, I am was there. Jesus was there. This is the God of the ancestors that were with them. They don't have to be 
afraid in the storm. You see, when you start to understand the power of the person in the boat with you, your experience of a storm will change. When you start to understand the power of who's in the boat with you, and MacGyver's not in the boat with you, my husband's not in the boat with you, the great I am is in the boat with you, is in the storm with you. That is what we have to align our minds to. So I want to take you to the last storm story, and it's found in Acts chapter 27. And just to give you a little bit of context to the story, some background, the story is around Paul. And Paul has to go to Rome. He's got to stand trial before Caesar. There's a lot of chaos going around him in that moment. People are plotting to kill him. They're angry about some of the things he's been saying. So he's been taken into custody by some Roman soldiers. And he's now awaiting to get on a ship to get to Rome to stand trial. Now, a couple of chapters before this, in chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus actually encourages Paul one evening in a dream. And he says, you know, Paul, you've been a witness to my people in Jerusalem, but I also want you to go to Rome because I want you to preach the good news there. So there's a calling and a purpose on Paul's life that has been appointed to him by Jesus. So Paul knows he's got an assignment in Rome to preach. Okay, now back to chapter 27. He's put on a boat en route to Rome. On the boat with him are other prisoners. They're commanding officers. They're sailors. There's the captain of the ship and they're soldiers. These are all the people present on the boat. And the storm story starts in verse 20. Let me just get there. <clears throat> and uh, it gives us insights into the magnitude of the storm they were in. The terrible storm raged for many days to the point where it blotted out the sun and the stars until at last all hope was gone. So this, doesn't, this wasn't a, this is an evening storm like the disciples had, you know. This was a storm that lasted for days. In fact, when you read on, it actually lasted two weeks. They couldn't see the sun or the stars to the point where there is literally no hope left. They're in utter, utter distress. From verse 21, it says this, no one had eaten for a long time. Finally, Paul called the crew together and said, men, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left for Crete. Then you would have avoided all of this damage and loss. You see, in the beginning of the story, he actually tells them, now's not a good time to sail because of the time of the year, but no one listened to him. I mean, he's a prisoner. Who's going to listen to a prisoner when you're a soldier or a captain of a ship, okay? But now they're in a crisis and men are listening. He says, take courage. None of you will lose your lives, even though the ship will go down. How's that for a comforting statement? Okay, you're not gonna die, but the ship will. Okay, for last night, an angel of, the, of God to whom I belong and to whom I, so, I serve stood beside me and he said, don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So take courage, for I believe God. It will be just as he said. But we will be shipwrecked on an island. <laughs> Can you hear the crisis of tension here? Okay, I love it. 
Paul demonstrates a very different response in the storm. He's witnessed the storm for two weeks. Okay. Two weeks. There's an absolute crisis on board the ship. The crisis has got to the point where there's just literally no hope left that eventually the highest ranking officers are even listening to the lowest soldier on board because there's no hope. You know, when you're in absolute crisis, you will listen to anyone that has some message of hope. There's power of what happens here. The disciples were filled with fear, but Paul is full of faith. Now, remember, Paul doesn't have Acts chapter 7 on him. He doesn't have the New Testament in his back pocket where he can go, let me just read if we make it. <laughs> He's in the crisis. All he has to hold on to is that an angel of the Lord has said to him, you will stand trial. He holds on to the calling Jesus has given him. You will be preaching in Rome. And the angel says, and everyone on board will live except for the boat. And Paul doesn't align his mind to fear or the storm or hopelessness. He aligns his mind to truth, to Christ, to the narrative that is given to him. You see, a narrative that we align ourselves to is either going to produce fear and panic or focus and peace. What you fix your eyes on, what you fix your mind to, despite circumstances, literally is the, lif is the difference between life or death. And the truth is that 276 men on board lived because they believed in what Paul had to say. Paul encouraged them to eat. They hadn't eaten for two weeks. He says, you know what, the ship's going to go down but you're going to live. But in order to have the, the, the energy to swim from where the ship sinks to the shore, you need to eat. When you're in a storm crisis, you need to eat. This is what's going to give you the nourishment to get through to the safety of the shore. I want to end with one last verse. This is Philippians 4, verses 6 to 9. Don't worry about anything, says Paul. Don't you hate it when someone says don't worry while you're in the midst of worrying? They give you the scripture. The Bible says don't worry. Worry either puts your mind in the future of fears or the past of regrets. Both very powerless positions. The enemy wants you to live in worry because it keeps you powerless. Instead, it says don't worry about anything. Instead, pray. Prayer puts you back into the presence Prayer is something I can do right now. It puts me back into a powerful position. Pray instead about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank Him for what He's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. Here's that phrase again. His peace will guard your heart and your mind as you live in Christ Jesus. So dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing. And then the peace of God will be with you. 
When Paul wrote this verse, he was in prison. But prison didn't stop him from declaring truth. Prison didn't stop him from preaching and encouraging. You see, he chose to fix his mind on the promises, not the prison. You can choose to fix your mind on the Savior instead of the storm. That word peace, the biblical definition of the word peace is a tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation despite this earthly lot. Paul had peace in a prison because his peace was based on his salvation, not prison walls. You can have peace because you know Christ was with you despite a storm raging around you. This is the promise of God that surpasses all understanding that when we exchange fears for truth, God will give us his peace. I want to end by praying for you. I don't know if you're maybe in a storm crisis right now and you need to be prayed for. Or maybe you're living in a place of deception where you honestly believe God doesn't care. Or maybe you don't even know who Jesus is and you don't want to sail the storms of life alone anymore. If you're in any one of those spaces, you're in a storm crisis you're in a place where you feel like the enemy is just attacking your mind and trying to distort you from seeing what truth is, or maybe you don't know who Jesus is. Don't you want to stand with me so we can pray? You're not alone. And here's what I want you to do. You, you can see right now who's standing up. I want you to stand with them. And if you can extend your hand and pray as we pray together, as a form of, you know what, we don't have to stand alone in the storms of life. We don't have to do this journey by ourselves. 276 men were saved because of the faith of one. There are more than 270 people in this room. And as you feel the collective presence of men and women of faith standing, saying, we're with you. You're not alone in the storm. Don't you want to just pray with me as we pray for those that have stood up today? Father, we thank you that you sent your son to die for us. We thank you that we get to believe in, in, in a God and a Jesus who is bigger than the storms and the crises of the world around us. Thank you, Jesus, that the great I am is saying, take courage to each person today that we don't have to journey these storms alone. Today, I choose to put my faith in you, Jesus, to grab hold of you by the hand. I thank you for the sacrifice you gave me on the cross, that you are my hope, that you are my future, that you are my salvation. And today, I choose to walk the journeys of storms with you by my side. Thank you that you love me so much that you walked on the waters of this earth to find me. And I put my faith in you today and forevermore. And all God's people said, amen.